Welcome to the special episode of SG Explain. This is not season three, not season four. This is a special episode. I will explain why in a bit. But Elliot, how have you been? Hey, dude, it's been a while since I've heard from you or seen you face to face. Great, dude, it's great. I know we're recording this in the midst of phase two heightened alert. It doesn't feel too unfamiliar. We've been doing this for a while, but it's always good to like get back in touch and, and hear your voice, Elliot. The feeling is mutual. The feeling is mutual. How have you been, man? How have you been? I've been good. I've been good. I've been planning hard for season four. I mean, the two of us, we've had a chat a couple of weeks ago, you know, just in the midst of our break. And we have a lot of exciting episodes planned for season four. We're going to be talking about stuff like Operation Cold Store. Uh, we're going to be talking about potentially like Chris Tang, which is, you know, a unique Ooh, culture yes. in Singapore. We may even be doing a sequel to our Ghost Stories episode. But the reason why we're doing this special episode is by the point that this episode is released, you may have noticed that we actually have a Channel News Asia production out there on TV and on MeWatch. And basically what happened was that Channel News Asia came to us. They said they want to do a partnership for their show called Into the Vault. We produced an episode together with them where we explored the story of Inspector Pope Joy and Little Cockroach. And so we're not going to do you know that story i think if you want to watch that story go and watch the me watch show but we wanted to do an accompaniment episode because i think as we did the research together with the production team we realized that secret societies have such a rich history and it's super interesting i mean it's it's quite a dark past there's a lot of violence and a lot of of harm but it also came from a very unique singaporean perspective and so i thought today we could spend that time to explore what secret societies were in singapore and how they evolved i'm excited i'm excited I to dive right into this. Kind of mentioned how rich this uh, history is, but not only is it rich, but it's pretty buried in, this, in, in a couple of ways, right? So it took took us a while just to uh, really like consider like, okay, which elements do we want to highlight? Exactly. We'll start by by giving the caveat that we're not glorifying any of this. While we go through these stories and you know, similar to how we watch shows around like the mafia or even the yakuza it's very easy to to get into the strap of just glorifying them that's not what we're trying to do we're really trying to understand what happened you can acknowledge that some of these things were, were crazy and fantastical but at the same time very very harmful to society and we'll see a lot of that later on as well this did happen in in singapore it is part of our history and culture but maybe i can oh, start with absolutely. this question elliot do you know anyone or do you have any relationships with people from secret societies the closest i've been to is meeting royston tan he filmed the movie about secret societies that's as close as it right. gets what i find interesting about doing an episode like this is a big part of it was how so far away it feels right like you don't experience any of these gang related activities on the ground as much in singapore maybe i'm privileged it seems so far away. Let's jump into it. So we'll start with the history as we always do. So there are varying definitions to what a secret society constitutes. Most secret societies have the following features. So first is claims to exclusivity, meaning that you have to do something to get in their own special secrets and their inclination to prioritize fellow members. It's not very unfamiliar. Like I used to be in a fraternity in college, right? And it's his own gang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it basically is a secret society. Actually, what's interesting is that despite the name secret, they are not unknown to the public. So a lot of times you'll know of some of these gang names, but it's more of the fact that the members and the activities in which they carry out are secret. The secret societies in Singapore can be traced to mid-18th century Fujian province in China, 
with the local offshoots adopting an organizational structure mirroring the parent organization. So it's almost like in the US, you had the mafia, but actually the original one was basically the Cosa Nostra, right? And that's the Sicilian mafia. And so it's almost like a parent organization in, you know, the home country, but in this new world, and in this case, instead of New York and Singapore, how you form an offshoot. And it's usually very like powerful organizations, right? I mean, they're very influential. They own some sort of industry or territorially, they might be in charge or something like that. Yeah, exactly. The first secret society to be established in Singapore is the Hongmen, and it traced its origins to the... in Fujian. The earliest known written records are by Munshi Abdullah, and in his work, called Hikayat Abdullah, he mentions his visit to the Gihin initiation ceremony in 1824 and how when he asked about the membership, he was given an estimate of around 8,000 members. While the numbers were likely to have been exaggerated, it definitely defeats the claim that secret societies only formed after the British presence, which was in 1819. And it shows that probably while it was in Singapore pre-British, its roots were there, it's just in smaller and varied forms. As you said earlier, they worked in essential and functional roles within society. They had a lot of control over stuff and they were often working in the open of state knowledge or tacit cooperation. And the reason for this is there was a source of support. They had political, economic and social influence. Their work straddled both legitimate and illegitimate businesses and it employed a large amount of labor. Because of that pure amount of influence, you couldn't kind of escape having to work with some of these secret societies, whether it's their legal or illegal entities. It's a very tricky space, right? When we watch all these shows that try to catch gang members, for example. It's like, hey, the front is legit, but maybe there's something beneath the surface that isn't. And despite their founding principles of like mutual assistance and bonding, these secret societies have like over time come to like conjure up impressions of like violence and disorder, right? So the very front-facing, top-of-mind thing we think about when it comes to gangs or secret societies is, you know, they are extremely aggressive and uh, they're here to make trouble. Uh, this associates perhaps is a little bit exaggerated and has been encouraged by law enforcement officers since their formation in the colonial era. This perception, you know, was, was strengthened by several factors, including the inability of the colony's administration to control activities uh, that they were carrying out, the branding of secret society members as criminal gangsters by the media, and an upsurge of violent crime in the 1960s sparked by a few of these society members themselves. Like These factors came together during the same period in which the country was trying to gain a foothold fresh from having attained political independence it did not foresee. So there's a lot of like things on the ground. Secret societies were actually a very core part of what functional society looked like, but it always came but horns with the fact that government was trying to be set up here, proper ruling environment. And this is this is very hard to straddle uh, between the two. When we think of secret societies, you normally think of Chinese secret societies. And this is unsurprising, right? There's an increasingly huge ethnic Chinese immigration population in Singapore uh, at this time, vis-a-vis the rest of, of the local population. And so the dominant narrative on secret societies was centered around ethnic Chinese secret societies. The research, there were multi-ethnic secret societies or even secret societies from other groups. So there were Indian secret societies. The Chinese secret societies even took in members from the Indian and Malay communities. Some of these stories were overshadowed. So some of the examples was around 1831, there were 
a couple of secret societies called the Red Flag and White Flag societies. And these were secret societies for Indians. These groups comprised of mainly Indian Muslims. There were also Indian Hindus, Jawi, Puranakans, and Malays. It basically showed how secret societies transcended religion and ethnicity. The authorities actually had a hand in collaboration with the secret societies because ethnic Indian police were bribed to join a lot of secret societies, just as with the Chinese secret societies, a lot of the ethnic Chinese police were also bribed to join them. When conflicts between these two groups broke out in the 1860s, they actually turned to collaborating with their Chinese secret society counterparts. And the mutual collaboration was not superficial. It went down to the level of helping each other in the daily operations. And there's also something. So something are basically Malay professional thugs. There's actually not much research on this group, but there is some records that show that the numbers are significant and they even played an important role with the Chinese secret societies. One example is that in 1872, the Gihok Society, which is one of these societies, had around 4,000-something under its wing. So it's it's quite interesting. It's like, again, if you think about New York and you think of like how the various crime families and crime organizations existed, Singapore had a very similar structure where you had maybe your dominant Chinese secret societies, but you had all these smaller gangs of different ethnic groups or representing different interests, and they were all working together. And, you know, while there were conflicts, like they would form alliances and stuff like that. So it's it's quite fascinating that all of this was happening here. Singapore was the only place reported to have Europeans even joining secret societies just because of the influence that they had. Wow. Even within the Chinese secret societies, you had diversity. So you had Hokkien, Teochew, Cantonese, Hakka, even those from southern China, so the Kuangtung and Fukien, they never saw themselves as like Chinese secret societies. It was a lot of times dialect driven, right? Right, right, right. It was very clan driven, actually. Like, so if we think about back in the day, even where we did episodes about uh, merchants, right, coming in uh, from these different provinces, uh, the huge exodus of like Chinese merchants out of China. Yeah, they were very clan based, right? And when we think about clans, what is a clan? <laughs> but by its own form of like identification, our kind of people. I used to think that secret societies were a very Chinese construct, right? It was mm-hmm. like, oh my god, this is just something that you guys are doing, right? But as I learned about this, I, I started to appreciate that actually it was, and it's a very own Singaporean way, diverse uh, yeah, it's all strange, uh, hashtag like multiracial, <laughs> multi-ethnic sort of a <laughs> collaboration. So so everyone in Singapore can kind of find some relationship to this topic, right? It's not just a Chinese thing. Nice to see that our roots truly are multi-ethnic and multiracial. It's in our DNA, bro. <laughs> it's, in, it's literally in our DNA. So in the next uh, section, we're going to be talking about the role secret societies played and some of the rights and practices. But because this is going to be a chunky episode, we're going to take a short break and we'll see you in a bit. All right, welcome back. We're going to pick up where we just left off and talk a little bit about uh, why people joined like these uh, secret societies first, right? I think it's very important to establish the rationalization and the and the reasons why people want to to join it. We all know that secret societies played like this functional role in colonial Singapore society in a context of male dominated immigrant society where law and order were at many times significantly under their control. Secret societies also provided some form of leadership and guidance given a colonial authority that was largely out of touch with common men. With such a context, such secret society memberships thus became like a viable option to many, right? If you feel lost and you don't believe in 
the governmental leadership, who else do you turn to? Well, someone who who's right there behind you says like, hey, I got your back, right? We prioritize our own members. You can lean on me. And given the variety of push factors to join, many did so out of practical reasons. So A, there was like services provided to immigrants. Like, you know, there was recruitment, drugs, prostitutes, and even like physical protection. If anyone harassed you, yeah, someone would be behind your back. There was also like kinship instead of family building due to this like five to one ratio of males to females. The reason why kinship is more important than family building was because there were not that many females. Couldn't really build families, right? You couldn't build like traditional families. But instead, what secret societies offered them were these areas where you could build kinship instead. So you got solid Right, right, right. Your comfort. Interesting, interesting. And the last one was actually about moral authority, right? So because the British forces here in Singapore were too small to police and sway uh, people on the ground, I think the secret society leaders were often invoked to intervene and represent interests and concerns. So if let's say we were having a dispute, I wouldn't bother going to the British police force, right? I would just go to the secret society leader and say, hey, help me settle this. And they will often intervene because we trusted their moral authority. We trusted the fact that they were the ones who understood our matters closer to our hearts. And this is, again, something we've seen in the Merchants episode, right? It was even well known, and and I think we kind of alluded to this in the Merchants episode, that some of these famous merchants were, in fact, members or affiliated with secret societies. When they wanted to get stuff done, they would go through the secret societies to engage some of these very influential merchants or, or leaders and, and find ways to basically influence the laws or policies around them. It's definitely a very different time. We have to remember before the rule of law was a big thing in Singapore. That gave a lot of trust. And the moment trust comes into play with the secret society members, with the leadership as well, it creates a sort of like a feedback loop, right? Where you become even more distrustful of outside forces because everything is so well taken care of in your immediate circle. And that's why I think there was a lot of importance placed on things like initiation ceremonies because being indoctrinated into the society wasn't just like a low barrier to entry task compared to say, you know, hey, uh, when the British were coming in to, to rule you guys, we have a bunch of laws. You'd be like, what's given to you is so much more different for like if you earned it. And hence, this initiation ceremonies that we're going to talk about uh, right now uh, played a pretty important part. Uh, thanks to Mothership, we actually found out a, a bunch of these. Kai Xiang Tang. Okay, so it's like loosely translated into like a room of like open fragrance and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So yeah. Yeah, so Kai is like the idea of open and Xiang is like sweetness. Tang usually is like a hall uh, or some sort of like area. So it's, in fact, it has very like religious sort of like connotations to it, right? Mm. Even in the name itself, it's given a sort of reverence. And here's how it goes, right? In the dead of the night, you would follow like a leader into a pepper and gambia plantation where an elaborate system of gates and symbolic items are laid out for you. You are then told to roll up your left pants leg and your right sleeve. The reasons for this, I, I have no idea why. It's kind of just the way it was. Uh, and you were to replace your shoes with grass sandals. A man would then dress in white uh, and then he'll lead you through three gates. Okay, The first gate is called the Hong Gate. The second, the Hall of Loyalty and Righteousness. The third one, the Hall of the City of Willows. All these names are given to them. And you can kind of tell, right, it is really embedded in some sort of reverence. You will then like follow suit, each time answering trick questions and reciting tediously long oaths. Uh, the journey ends at the Red Flower Pavilion, where your finger is pricked and the blood that you drip is mixed with chicken blood, rice wine, and sugar. The white man will then command you 
drink and become our sworn blood brother. And at the end, you are given a membership certificate which you are told to guard with your life. That is very, very interesting. Uh, the example of the Sung Si Kong Si, this is like a membership certificate below. Uh, we have a picture of it in our document. And if you Google Sung Sin Kong Si membership certificate, uh, you'll see this picture. And uh, you'll notice that there's a numerical puzzle at the top of this like inner octagon. And these symbols represent numbers that add up horizontally, vertically, or diagonally to 15. It's... All day Sudoku, I guess. This is fascinating, right? Because it's so detailed. It's so meticulous. It's so bureaucratic, if you think about it. <laughs> Again, I compare it to my fraternity where we also had to go through a ritual. And uh, let me just say, I mean, there was no pricking of fingers or drinking of blood or anything like that. It was definitely just as elaborate. It was almost like an immersive play that you kind of have to go through where you transcend your idea of who you are and you take on this new identity, which which basically, in this case, the secret society gives to you, right? And you, you do that by doing like the recitations, by chanting, and, and by by really just taking on that, that new identity. If you watch the Challenges Asia episode, you'll see some of the other things that you'll have to learn. So for example, there are certain hand signals that you have to learn there are certain phrases you have to learn and these are like code phrases that you you say to one another and each secret society used to have a number so in this case we talked about the sung sin kong si and that their number was 15 other clans would have different numbers and you kind of have to remember the puzzles that go with those numbers as well so it's fascinating stuff how elaborate all of this was you're entering this like very surreal space and hence like you have you treat it as though it was like some sort of religious ceremony even where it's beyond your yourself it's it's less about you, the individual, and more about you being a part of something bigger. And I, I, and I can see the appeal of this, right? With such an important component of initiation, there were also these oaths that they were taking, right? And by breaking these oaths, it was always seen as like breaking the law. Back in the day for these secret societies, it was more often than not. Uh, some sort of loss of a body part. There, there were some examples that we could find. The first duty of a brother, for example, was to honor his parents. It was forbidden for an individual to abuse their brothers and parents. If he did so, he would be considered dishonorable as to break this law. And within a month, he would be drowned in an ocean. His flesh float on the surface of the waters and his bones be buried in the ocean floor. That was the level of filial piety that was demanded of these members. That's a very high bar. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, dude. There's a very good chance my bones will be buried on the ocean floor. Another one was that, you know, if, if a brother enters the house of another brother, a tea and rice must be served to him. So this whole idea of hospitality. And if any brother failed to do so, uh, he may die by losing his blood along the street. Like they would just like say, that's disrespectful. Um, you must, there's a blood price to it. Uh, another one was having performed the ceremonies on returning home, a brother must not sell the signs and secrets of the Hong Brotherhood. Uh, if any brother be so shameless, may he be killed by a tiger or have his eyes bitten out by a snake. Uh, the secrets are what kind of keep these gangs powerful. So, you know, sometimes they will also use like these numbers to represent the triad name. So in this case, uh, imagine the triad name Hong, it will be represented as the numbers 3, 8, 21. Uh, the reason being because you could deconstruct it into like three being like, uh, you know, three, three lines like San for Chinese. Eight would represent Pa, which is the Pierre and Na strokes. 20 would actually have this like Kong kind of like symbol and 
one would represent E. So when you combined those uh, features together, it would actually show you, okay, this is the triad. I thought that was super interesting how you basically join a secret society and how you become a member. Now let's talk about some of the activities that secret societies were involved in, right? So the need for labor in the growing colonial economy saw an increase in the immigration of Chinese coolies. And because most of them could not afford the necessary fees, essentially they became somewhat indentured servants, right? So they required passage assistance and agents of secret societies or labor brokers who recruited on behalf of secret societies in the coastal provinces of southern China were able to provide these passage assistance to these coolies. They were given an advanced sum of money for their expenses, for which the contracted debt was transferred to their employer, whom they had to work off to pay the debt. A lot of times this took around three years, but many coolies faced exploitation and abuse. And on top of that, the hard labor often involved with coolie work, as well as poor living conditions and cram and hygienic squatters took a toll both on their bodies and health. Public health care back then was practically non-existent, and so a lot of coolies took to opium as a form of relief, even if it was only illusionary. You have to imagine this state of mind, right, where a lot of these laborers are in Singapore, you know, they're heavily indebted, they are in a lot of pain. Secret societies provide them a relief, right, because as we said, it gives them some level of kinship, it gives them services like opium, it gives them access to, like, prostitutes, which for them was, like, a relief, and and it, it basically created almost like a captive demand for them. Uh, production as well as consumption of opium, while it was not illegal then, was in fact an important source of revenue for these organizations that controlled the opium trade, um, as well as for the colonial government who collected tax revenues from its sale. Its consumption was also both like domestic as well as an export good to other parts of Asia. These secret societies right, uh, were involved with the Chinese Kongxi that concurrently ran lucrative, legitimate businesses. So talking a bit about that mix between what is front-facing and what is kind of below the surface. Uh, in fact, the very same opium farming syndicates are also the ones that are involved with the lucrative pepper and gambia businesses, showing the extent of economic power and authority, which always reminds me of when we talked about people like the Gambia King mm -hmm. and whether or not they had to deal with either A, competition, or like B, whether it was a part of like something under their radar that they had to consider very strongly when making economic decisions. That's how integrated secret societies were, or at least that's the impression I'm, I'm getting uh, back in the day. But apart from that, of course, they did illicit activities, right? And apart from like opium dealings, secret societies were also involved in the range of these criminally uh, illegal type things from prostitution to gambling and loan sharking amongst others. Uh, prostitution in particular was a long-standing stronghold of the secret societies. Now, given the lucrative nature of prostitution in the society with, you know, we talked about the five-to-one ratio just now, uh, competition and rivalry for control of the prostitution trade among secret societies was like a constant component. And apart from reason of the secret society's ability to engage and sustain their hold in these activities, were the special connections they had to the British colonial government due to the revenue generated from these activities being shared. Uh, there was also an understanding between the state and leaders of secret societies that in times of trouble, they could solicit the help of these leaders. So in a very strange roundabout way, it's also to say that the government acknowledged the fact, right? The British colonial government acknowledged the fact that these gangs were operating illegally. You have to balance between wanting to enforce your law and at the same time appreciate the cultural context in which you're operating in. So for them, it was, if you can't beat them, then 
profit from them. I think it's basically the mindset here. At least regulate it in a, in a way that it doesn't go out of control, right? Yeah, like, as long as the coolies could work, uh, there was a steady flow of labor. And at the end of the day, they didn't have to worry too much about issues that were happening in the community. The British were probably very happy to let things happen. So many coolies were part of what was called the pig trade. And they were contracted to work in places such as the Gambia and pepper plantations or even the opium plantations. But it, it created almost like a vicious cycle. Coolies who were working on these plantations became consumers of opiums themselves. And so they were basically feeding the very organizations they were working for. For coolies who were, who became opium addicts, many of them faced the consequences of being unable to clear the debt from the contracts and therefore being further indebted and bounded. So uh, this was the same for prostitution, gambling, which again came under secret society. So you you imagine, right, you come here, you're in debt, uh, you start needing support, and then you go to opium, prostitution, gambling. You owe even more money to secret societies. So you're like stuck in this cycle, right? Yeah, basically, and you have to keep working. And there were also like health issues, right, because you have to remember this was before public health care. And so there was a lot of sexually transmitted diseases. So it, it became a really difficult situation for the coolies. And the secret societies were, were unashamed about it, right? As long as they could profit, they were more than happy to perpetuate the cycle. And they, and they created a lot more problems, right? So this is when we start to see some of the, the issues with secret societies, including a set of riots, right, that happened in Singapore. Oh, yeah. I think the first of which was like the anti-Catholic riots. Uh, and this one took place from like February 15th, uh, to February 20th of 1851. And this is not, not a small riot per se, you know, like I think there were 500 people estimated to have been dead or, or killed during these riots. And the reasons for these riots were due to the successes in which the Catholics had in having converts to Catholicism, which meant that their pool in which secret societies could draw membership from had shrunk, given the very like Taoist-style religious connotation that some of these secret societies entail. I'm not surprised. I think when it comes to uh, trying to keep a secret society going, it's really on membership. And hence, a lot of uh, efforts are emphasized in recruitment, right? It's, but that was just the first one. I think the second one that we uh, that we found was the Teochew Hokkien riot. So this is between two ethnic groups in this case, uh, also known as the Great Riots of 1854 or the Five Cappies of Rice Riots, which took place three years later from May 5th to May 17th, 1854, with an almost equal death toll of estimated 480 dead alongside another 222 people injured. Uh, the riots happened right, mostly due to the rivalry between the two largest Chinese dialect groups here, you know, the Teochews and the Hokkien's. And the trigger, some say, for the riot started over a rather petty issue, where on 5th May, a dispute between a Hokkien shopkeeper and a Teochew buyer regarding the price of rice drew the attention of bystanders who took sides based on their affiliations and ended up escalating into a major riot. So uh, just let's think about why this can happen. Like it seems very petty to us, but actually what we mentioned earlier was how the intervention of like gang leaders to have the backs of their members was always at the forefront of the rules and rules were, as we kind of talked about as well, never meant to be broken. Like they were strictly enforced. Uh, betraying a brother is worse than not standing up for, for, for a brother or it's, it's considered to be the same thing. So a major player amongst the secret societies in this incident was actually said to be the Gi Hin Society, which had splintered off into various groups, including Teochew and Hokkien affiliated ones respectively. So there was some sort of intermediary 
uh, that could straddle between both sides in order to de-escalate the issue. We're starting to see really how secret societies you know, started off as as a place to to hold a community for people who are coming into Singapore, uh, trying to provide services, how they started to become uh, worse as they started trapping coolies in this vicious cycle, uh, how they were basically participating in illegal activities and even got to the point where there were a couple of riots. And so the big question that a lot of us probably have is how are we regulating these folks, right? What was done to clamp down? And we'll find out after the break. All right, we're back from the break. In this last section of the podcast, we're going to be talking about exactly what happened to clamp down on secret societies. Now, there's a couple of elements to this. Of course, there's policing, there is regulation, but we also have a pretty interesting experiment that we'll talk about later on called the Pulau Senang Penal Settlement. Personally, when I found out about this island experiment, I was fascinated. I thought it's it's so interesting that Singapore as a country, uh, we did this. <laughs> if you told me this story like when I was a kid, I probably wouldn't have believed it. I probably think it's like an urban myth. But the fact that we had it is really cool. As we said, in the early days, secret societies were just seen as organizations that needed to be partnered with in order to regulate society. And so the British worked with the leaders in order to manage the population. But because of these problems, because of the riots, the first thing that they did was they enacted the Peace Preservation Act, also known as the Banishment Act of 1867, which was then followed by the 1869 Ordinance for the Suppression of Dangerous Societies. And then lastly, it was the Chinese Protectorate in 1877. So the Peace Reservation Act, which is the first one, gave authorities the power to deport Chinese immigrants convicted of crime, and it was supposed to be deterrent to secret societies. The Ordinance for the Suppression of Dangerous Societies in 1869 took it a step further, where all societies with more than 10 members had to be registered, and it allowed the colonial government to have some level of scrutiny and oversight. But it was questionable whether the authorities even were able to do that pretty well. And then in 1877, there was the establishment of the Chinese Protectorate. And this was known as a bit more of a successful approach. They appointed this person called William Packering, who was the Chinese protector, serving as a bridge between Chinese immigrant communities and the colonial government. Now, William Packering sounds like a white guy, he is a white guy, but he was knowledgeable in Chinese customs and language and actually had a good relationship with the Chinese community. And so this allowed many potential issues and problems to be solved as he communicated effectively as the intermediary between the colonial government and the Chinese community. Now, this is important because he is almost like a neutral party. He's not a secret society member, but he's also not necessarily the colonial government. And so he was basically an in-between for this. He actually went down to the ground and he was involved in helping exploited coolies and prostitutes. But despite all of this, the secret societies actually eventually rebelled. Uh, they saw this as, you know, loosening their grip on power, loosening their grip on society. And so there was an attempted assassination of William Packering in 1887 oh, wow. by a purported secret society member who was he basically flung an axe to his head. As a result of this, Pickering was, I imagine, a bit scared and he, he essentially retired the following year. The 
other thing that happened was, uh, of course, improvements to the police force. So in 1843, there were only 133 police personnel. And so the conjecture was even if an army of around 600 men were brought in, they were no match for the Chinese community consisting of nearly 32,000 people. So Thomas Dunman, the first commissioner of police, wrote that his police force was underpaid and drew salaries lower than the average coolie. And this was compounded by the fact that no one in the police force was qualified to deal with the Chinese because most of them were Europeans. That's, that's insane just to think about like the power disparity between like uh, someone who's trying to control or trying to have some sort of like rule over society versus on the ground itself. Yeah, of course, none of these folks had any understanding of the Chinese communities. They didn't understand how to police the Chinese communities. And they didn't, they were a bit scared they were a bit suspicious of involving the Chinese in the police because they could be affiliated with secret societies and be, you know, spies or, or insiders. This really made the police force ineffective. And the wealthy even had to hire private watchmen and carry personal arms to ensure their own safety. Now, this changed when the Singapore became a crown colony and large improvements were made to the local police force. This was an important factor that helped track the growth of secret societies. There was more funding, better equipment, proper training. And this made the police force a much more effective force than when it was under the East India Company. Even more significant was the hiring of Chinese police officers who could understand and deal with the problems associated with secret societies. It kind of like grew a little bit more into like the suppression, you know, uh, of 1890 and the failure to regulate the secret societies, you know, coupled with Pickering's attempted assassination led to the colonial government deciding to fully curb the secret societies. Uh, the decline of secret societies in Singapore took place with the society's ordinance coming into effect on 1st January 1890. Uh, the ordinance would be a strict enforcement of the previous 1869 ordinance. This time, with the society's ordinance, under its provision, any society with more than 10 members was deemed illegal unless it was registered and received government approval. So covering their butts in, in, this, in, the, in the cases of like dealing with very powerful societies. Uh, furthermore, the ordinance gave overarching powers to the government over the secret societies, giving them the authority to ban and dissolve any societies in which they deemed unlawful. So it's, it's very much like a very heavy-handed approach uh, to quelling secret societies. The society's ordinance of 1890 dealt like a major blow and led to the decline of societies uh, in colonial Singapore. But despite such an effort, they continued to exist in smaller scales and in varied ways. They either forced existing secret societies to go underground or break up and form new secret societies of their own. So uh, an example of the latter was the case for former members of the Gihok Society, right? The end of the colonial era saw the continuation of secret societies as well as the rise of new ones with a wide spectrum of types and means of organization given the different societal contexts. Significant Malay secret societies have also arisen at the point in time, such as the Omega Gang. I know it sounds very, very, very strange, right? It sounds like a comic book kind of gang. But it's actually an acronym for Orang Melayu Enter Gangster Area, which continues to exist to today. There were even female-dominated secret societies uh, that we've talked about before in our tattoo episode, such as the Red Butterfly, also known as Ang Hong Tiap. New and smaller groups also emerged alongside some of the traditional ones that were undeterred. They registered themselves as recreational groups, taking advantage of the loophole in the law that exempted societies formed for recreation, charity, religious, and literary purposes. Now, some of these recreational clubs continued to be active even after the Second World War. Secret society activities reached its peak in the 1920s 
And Singapore acquired the unsavory reputation of being the Chicago of the East. And in 1930, the detective branch, now known as um, CID or the Criminal Investigation Department, was reorganized into specialized sub-branches to tackle crime and vices. Uh, under the new arrangement, the supervision of Cantonese, Hakka, Hailam, Fuchao, Teochew, Hokkien, Hinghui, and Hokchia secret society records were carried out by different dedicated sub-branches. And finally, in August 1930, the government also began restricting Chinese male immigrant numbers. So you can see that there is a very significant amount of effort, right, to quell secret society activity from all fronts, either through criminal like justice pursuit, so setting up task force to, to take them down, to immigration policies. Yeah, so there's a couple of eras, right, that we talked about. We've so far tracked early days of when the British were in Singapore. Then we kind of went into colonial era where there was a bit more funding and a bit more administration. Uh, and of course, this was when the colonial government tried to stamp out stuff a bit more. Uh, and then, of course, as we enter the 1900s, you see this becoming more of an issue as they try to work around the laws and Singapore earns the reputation of Chicago of the East. Now, World War II happens and essentially World War II is an interesting time that we can probably spend a lot more time in if we wanted to. But the Secret Society members actually organized themselves and they were very involved in fighting back against the Japanese. But after that, in post-World War II, now we had an issue where secret societies had kind of accumulated too much power and the government did not know how to respond. So one of the things that they did was in late 1945, they established a new sub-branch called Gangs in the police force. And and literally <laughs> the, the, the job of this sub-branch was to clamp down on all these secret societies. In the month of November 1945 alone, the police conducted 21 raids against organized gangs, breaking up two large and dangerous gangs. And in two of the raids, the police were even fired upon by the gangsters. A police patrol car was fired upon once while chasing a car suspected to be conveying armed gangsters. And as a result of the constant raid, it was reported that all organized gangs of any size had ceased to exist by the middle of November. However, gangs involved in looting, pickpocketing, extortion continued to trouble the police. And by 1947, crime showed an increase again over the whole island. The inability of the police to charge members of secret societies openly collecting money from shopkeepers, allegedly for prayer meetings, also affected the morale of the police. We're really in this very new state, right, after World War II, where the secret societies have, again, accumulated power. The police don't really have much legislative tools that they can use. Uh, and there's a constant, like, battle between the police and the secret societies. It's literally, again, you have to kind of imagine this, right, like, gunfire in the middle of the street as they try to, to evade each other. In the 1950s, secret societies entered the political fray when the communists and political parties like the Kuomintang began courting their support. And during the legislative assembly elections of 1954, 55, and 57, gangs hired by rival candidates disrupted the campaigns. The police also uncovered links between secret societies and labor unions. And in May 1955, the leader of the Hockley bus riots was found to be not only a PAP member, as well as a leader of 18, one of the secret society gangs. During the Chinese middle school riots, there were 256 secret society members among the 375 arrested. And so the police launched this operation called Operation Dagger in 1956 to intensify the operations. And in basically 1957, there were tons of spot checks conducted and screening of suspicious persons. Now, Elliot, have you heard? Operation Dagger before? Yes, I, I know about Operation Dagger. In fact, it's a, it was a great 
uh, <laughs> cocktail bar that <laughs> was on Ang Siang Hill. Yeah, and the reason for that is because a lot of the criminal activity was on Ang Siang Hill. The bar name, of course, is kind of like an homage to that, but it's super interesting. In 1958, the Commission on Police chaired a government-appointed committee to combat secret society activities, and in August that year, new powers were given to the police when the Criminal Law Temporary Provisions Ordinance was amended to provide for the preventive detention without trial of persons associated with criminal activities of up to six months. Now, here's a fun fact. This is 1958, and the key term here is Temporary Provisions Ordinance. It is still in place. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. In fact, today, uh, one of the key tools that the government uses is the same act to detain without trial persons associated with criminal activities, especially in secret societies. In 1959, the police set up the Phantom Squad, which was later called the Special Squad, comprising specially trained plainclothes police officers to deal with the gangs assembling for a fight. Uh, it was actually very successful, but was disbanded in early 1961 because the police launched this thing called Operation Senjata. So... Under this operation, more than 1,900 policemen from divisional stations and reserve units, including members of our volunteer group, were mobilized to conduct surprise checks, roadblocks, and special patrols. And within a week, 4.4K people were checked on, 165 people were brought into CID headquarters for screening, and you know they managed to detain gangsters as well as arrest a want thug, an opium smoker, and two persons found gambling in public. Now, just the widespread reach of this caused an immediate drop in crime in secret society riots. They resumed Operation Sanjata a couple of times after that, and by 1990, the power and influence of secret societies had been successfully curtailed. The gangs have today are uh, known as a pale imitation and mere shadows of the secret society's notorious past. The, the fact that we had a very big public operation that was hyper-effective, within a week, 4,000 over people were, were checked on and 165 people brought into CID headquarters. That's, that's no small number, but like, at least at this point in time, right? Definitely, it shows how serious they were about all yeah. of this. And, you know, they were definitely trying as many different things as they could. One of which, as we mentioned before, was this island experiment. So, you know, let's let's jump into it. What was the Pulau Senang penal settlement? This is a great story, right? So back then, the People's Action Party, you know, PAP, uh, Singapore's new self-government in 1959, was determined to eradicate gangsterism and secret societies uh, completely. It was estimated that there were as many as 120 gangs at this point in time, including some familiar names like Ang Hong Tiap, uh, Seo Kun Tong, and Tiong Ning Tok, Sri Tong, and Lo Kwan, and more than 10,000 active secret society members in Singapore at this point in time. Uh, rival clashes occurred almost every week, resulting in dozens of deaths. Uh, a thousand gangsters were said to be arrested each year. So, uh, in order to try to like stop this once and for all, we went to this place called Pulau Senang or the Isle of Ease. When we say the word Senang, right? Uh, and we were filming, we were filming the episode. I was like, Senang. Why is why is this place called Pulau Senang? It sounds so chill. So this was in from 1960 to 1962, right? Uh, the outdated prison system could not cope with the continuous arrests that they, uh, that we were having. And it's overcrowding and hygienic issues uh, forced the authorities to explore new ideas and solutions. So by early 1960, a Pulau Senang settlement proposal was drawn. Its objective was simple. It was to solve the existing issues and also to help gangsters work their way back to society through hardship and sweat. Uh, Pulau Senang, or Isle of Ease in Malay, 
was then an uninhabited coral island that laid 13 kilometers away from the mainland of Singapore. Our very own sort of like Alcatraz go there to go and do hard labor. So this is what the Hard Island experiment entailed. It was believed that the hardcore criminals and violent gangsters who had no regards for law or order uh, were forced into a tough circumstances due to lack of jobs and security. So instead of just being like punish them by going to jail, they wanted to rehabilitate these guys to solve the root of the problem, which is this, you know, lack of jobs and security. Through disciplinary means, they could be reformed and would one day be accepted back into society. At least one person, uh, Irishman Daniel Stanley Dutton, held this belief. A born leader and the superintendent of the prison department, uh, Dutton strongly believed that no man was born evil and a second chance should be given to those who were willing to change for the better. It was a very noble aspiration, of course, but Dutton's iron fist rule also meant that his prisoners were subjected to harsh disciplinary methods. One of the reasons that might have incited this riot, right? Uh, in May 1960, the penal reform experiment officially started. Dutton and his 50 prisoners landed on Pulau Senang and began developing the Bear Island immediately. So it wasn't just that we were, they were going there to be in a prison. No, they were going to... They basically are building their own prison. Yeah, they were building their own prison. Their prison. They were building like a settlement where they would be rehabilitated. Uh, other detainees subsequently arrived in batches of 30. And within a short period, the island, no larger than about 227 acres big, was turned into a self-sufficient rehabilitation center. Uh, you know, it had roads, reservoirs, workshops, farms, and even a sports ground. So they built their own resort in a way <laughs> and was considered an initial success, right? The Pulau Senang experience was a success at the beginning because uh, in just two years, over 250 prisoners most of them, obviously Chinese secret society members, uh, went through the reform system. And after spending a year in Changi prison, the prisoners had the option to redeem themselves at Pulau Senang. They were given various manual tasks upon their arrival, and each of them was assessed by Dutton himself every single month. If the prisoners' performance was satisfactory, well, after six months or so, they would be released back to the mainland. A government department would help them settle down and find suitable jobs. So that it's not just like you come here to get punished, but like they really take you through a journey to integrate you back to society. Um, Dutton, however, would not hesitate to send any rebellious or resentful individuals back into jail. So think of it as like a, like a purgatory, right? If you were deemed to be to be you know able to be saved, you would be released back to mainland. But if not, uh, you would go back into the system. The 40-plus-year-old Daniel Dutton was a confident man, right? And he was given this nickname called the Laughing Tiger. And he was the sole European on that island and had only three assistants, two Chinese and one Ceylonese to help him. There were no firearms in the settlement and Dutton even allowed minimum supervision of his prisoners, believing that they would not escape. He also kind of like laughed it off when his informers told him that the hardcore gangsters were plotting to kill him. So it was... He's, he's quite an interesting character, this Daniel Dutton guy. It's very hard to figure out someone like, like him. Yeah, he's very strong-handed and strong-willed. But unfortunately, 
you know, this backfired on him uh, because as much as we like to think that this experiment was very enlightened. It's very thinking for its time. Yeah, it was very progressive, very forward thinking, very enlightened. But unfortunately, in 1963, the number of detainees on the island had ballooned to over 300. The island security headed by Dalton was less than 50, which is around a 1 to 6 ratio, right? Essentially, what happened was that on 12 July 1963, there was an event that that basically sparked off a riot. 13 detainees who were working on the jetty were deported. And there was already a growing resentment when these 13 men were ordered because they were working only during the low tides, regardless of day or night. Their fatigue turned into anger after Dutton demanded nothing but hard work and results. When the crowds became rowdy in the morning, Dutton refused to call for reinforcement from the mainland police or the coastal guards, and he was confident that the majority of the detainees would stand by him against a few rebellious ones. By the time Dutton realized he could not control the hostile situation, it was all too late. The island, which detainees took three years to build and develop, were practically destroyed in just 40 minutes. Buildings were burned to the ground, and Dutton and his three of his assistants were brutally chopped to death by the rioters using axes and chunkles. Most of the rebels made no attempt to escape, and after the murders, they cheered and celebrated as though they were the new conquerors of Pulasanak. It was the first time in the legal history of Singapore that so many men were charged and convicted at the same time for capital offense, Case dragged on for two years, and in June 1965, the appeal against their death sentences were rejected by the Privy Council. So out of the 58 detainees involved in the rioting, 11 were acquitted, 29 were jailed two to three years, and the remaining 18, including the notorious Tan Keng An, nicknamed Robert Black and Botak Chia Yofet, were hanged in October 1965. Uh, just give you Law of the Flies sort of like vibes, you know? Yeah. What an insane experiment for us to actually have done uh, in the early years of Singapore's founding. I wish I knew the story, right? Because it's such a fascinating story in Singapore's history. Of course, it's just the novelty of things. It's the willingness to try new things. And, and I guess it's a bit unfortunate that it kind of backfired on, on someone who was trying to be progressive and enlightened. But I, I mean... In all fairness, Dutton was also a bit of an idiot, right? Like to, yeah, to be yeah, so yeah. proud and not want to to ensure adequate levels of security. I'm just glad that we got to hear the story because I think it's it's such an important part of like how we try to tackle law and order in Singapore. So today things are very different, as we mentioned, because of a lot of the the clamping down that happened in the 19. 19- 50s onwards uh, with the operations and jatas and, and all of that there was a much much quieter activity uh, for secret societies right now there is a secret societies branch under the criminal investigation department in the singapore police force they're more focused at youth at risk being recruited and made use of it includes like young kids as young as 12 or 13 being influenced to join gangs they are latchkey children with no one to show concern for them or they may have a parent in prison so they went astray so a lot of what this team does beyond policing is to do preventive education, right? So there's this program called Streetwise. There's this thing called Camp Ace at Ubin, where they counsel youth to understand, you know, actually, why are you trying to join a gang? Is it fear, companionship, protection, and to address concerns in a non-secret society way? So while the secret society is currently under control, they basically said that they are not complacent. They rely on enforcement, preventive education, and uh, legislation like the Criminal Law Temporary Provisions Act basically uh, do a lot of the work that they do. We still see them sometimes, right? We see them sometimes in clubs. We see them sometimes in like karaoke bars where you can, they'll start chanting and then you know, oh, these are secret society. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's even in Singapore, like, 
I don't think anyone is blind to the fact that gangs are alive, but in terms of creating the kind of hullabaloo and ruckus uh, that we would have, say, maybe even 40 years ago or 50 years ago, like, it's, it's, it's not so much on the surface as, as it used to be. La. Yeah, and they don't have that much of a grip on the rest of society. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, we much prefer rule of law. We much prefer uh, going by the book. Uh, and they kind of keep to themselves as well. And you kind of let the police deal with the policing and enforcement for all of the stuff, as long as they don't interfere with, with most of like mainstream society. So Yeah, for sure, for sure. One one of the key changes is, I, I guess if you were to look at it from a historical perspective, it's the role of secret societies. Not to say that they've been eradicated completely, but the amount of stranglehold they have on our day-to-day lives is so much so much different. Uh, the power balance also has shifted uh, completely away from them. Uh, the way government can afford to intervene in secret society activities is at an all-time high compared to what it was where, where you looked at how the British had like 300 over men who had to come in to fight maybe, what, 32,000? Yeah. Was that the number? Yeah. yeah. That, that's an insane uh, balance of power shift. As a listener, we one of the things we hope that you appreciate is that, you know, it has been a very interesting journey and it shows how our communities used to be run, uh, managed. It's, it, it adds to the richness of how we are as a modern state right in comparison to back then where it was very uh community driven and very secret society driven um of course the other piece of it is also to appreciate the rule of law and how it's evolved and how it's been effective uh together with of course community action and education and how it's also quite a precarious situation right like you can never be complacent with it if you start to undermine the rule of law and sometimes uh, who knows what could happen with, with criminal activity starting to gain a foothold again. Now, I say all of that also holding some of uh, these these possibly open positions around, you know, the fact that we the criminal law is a temporary provision but it's still in place, right? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> I am very confused as a as a, as a citizen myself but I, I think it's, these are conversations that we can have and, and definitely it's a starting point for us uh, if anything at all yeah I, I think that's a that's a really good takeaway from 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 something like this where we talk a little bit more about the implications and uh, kind of like every every nation has its baggage right in a certain way every nation has uh, stories which make the, the current fabric of society uh, and even though it's totally different nowadays it'll be very remiss of us to not look back at the past and say yeah what can we learn about about ourselves now if you want a visual accompaniment to this episode you want to see Elliot and I in full HD uh, definitely go <laughs> check out the Challenge Asia episode it's on me watch and you'll see more basically we there's some overlap but there's stuff like we talk about the gun laws we, t- we talk about um, it's a specific murder case between a secret society member and the police and we kind of dive deep into that true crime style so there's a lot more that you can check out we do hope that you share this podcast episode as well as you know that video if, if you find it entertaining and you find it useful and you know we're going into season four we're going to be launching season four very soon what we do ask is that if you can subscribe if you can share do that we want to get as much of a reach with, with some of the cool content that we that we have and we hope to start more conversations that we why we do what we do absolutely thank you so much for for tuning into this episode of sg explain a very special episode so to speak and uh, 
Uh, we hope to do more of these in the future, right, Vivek? Yeah, absolutely. I personally always love true crime. It's uh, such yeah. an interesting <laughs> crime and law. Such an interesting genre. And with that being said, we have a whole new season for you guys to look forward to coming up real soon. So thanks for staying in. Do share this and uh, tell us if what other kind of topics you'd like to see. Or if you have any interesting uh, ideas of your own, please feel free to share with us on social media. All right. And